Matthew chapter 12, get over there to about verse 14. Matthew 12, verses 14 through 21, that's our text. The topic, Jesus says, hurting people are like bruised reeds whom we should seek out to serve. Title of our message, cruising for a bruised reed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. We appreciate, Lord, that thus far you've given us the privilege of worshiping you from our hearts. Now with hearts full of praise, we anticipate that your Holy Spirit will teach us from your word as a, those guys that once came to the disciples said, we would see Jesus. And so, Lord, show us yourself in your glory and splendor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're on Facebook, you probably saw a post with the following quotation, don't believe everything you read on the internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. How many of you saw that last week? Anybody? It was very interesting. It's great advice, except that it was attributed to Abraham Lincoln with his picture next to it. I'm pretty sure Abraham Lincoln didn't invent the internet because that was invented by Al Gore, who also invented global warming. So now every now and then you do come across a remarkable quote, one that you know is true, but that nevertheless makes you wonder. You may be familiar with the writings of F.B. Meyer. He's a pastor and evangelist from the early 1900s who wrote over 40 commentaries and devotionals, and they're good ones, I might add. Meyer said this, When our Lord took on himself the form of a servant, girded himself and began to wash the feet of his disciples, it was no new office that he performed for the life of God is ever one of service. He rules all because he serves all. I, of course, think of Jesus as a servant in his incarnation when he became the God-man. But to say that the life of God is ever one of service, that he was a servant before the incarnation and remains a servant still, isn't something I tend to dwell upon. Dwell upon it or not, it's true. Jesus did not become a servant by coming to earth. He has always been and always will be a servant. We know Jesus washed his disciples' feet before the Last Supper. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will in the future wait upon us, his weary saints, at the marriage supper in heaven. He remains a servant. Now, I'm talking about Jesus being a servant because that is how he is portrayed in these astonishing verses in chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel. We'll see he was sent to serve, but also that he still serves. Seeing him as a servant should inspire us to replicate his serving as we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit just as he did. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the God you serve came to serve, and number two, the God you serve continues to serve. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 14 and 15 at Jesus coming to serve. Now, I feel it necessary to say that I believe God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, that he exercises sovereignty, knows the end of all things, and rules the world by his divine providence. I feel it necessary to say that because when you say that God has always been and will always be a servant, it can sound as though we are demoting him or demeaning him in some way. Not at all. Jesus is the fullest expression of and the clearest representation of the character and nature of God. He said of himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, and he said that to his disciples shortly after washing their feet. 
He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what did they see in Jesus? They saw him take the place of the lowest servant to do what was necessary. Seeing God as servant takes nothing away from him. It adds to our wonderment as to his glory. And so verse 14, it says, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus had just healed a withered hand on the Sabbath. Yes, the Pharisees were upset that he had violated their Sabbath rules, but what elevated it to wanting to destroy Jesus was the fact that he claimed to be greater than the temple and to be the Lord over the Sabbath. That's, that's the real rub. Because there were lots of disagreements over what constituted keeping the Sabbath. I didn't tell you last week because we didn't have time to go into it, but there were people even more radical than the Pharisees in terms of Sabbath regulations. Uh, The Essene community down in Qumran, the guys that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were way more radical than the Pharisees in terms of keeping the Sabbath and regulations. And so it wasn't that they just wanted to kill him over that. They understood that he was claiming to be greater than the temple and to have authority over them. Although greater, although Lord, Jesus had come to serve. In verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Now in the gospel of Mark, we read that the multitudes were from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And that they were joined by another multitude of people who came from the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. I mentioned that because it lets us know there were lots of Gentiles in that crowd as well as Jews. We're in an important transitional section in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' offer to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth that was promised the Jews was being rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. We'll see that more as this chapter unfolds. In a minute, they're going to accuse him of uh, casting out demons by having a demon himself. And so they are definitely rejecting Jesus. He was being rejected as the promised Messiah. And chapters 12 through 15 are going to discuss the change in God's program for Israel in response to their rejection of both king and kingdom. His withdrawal from the synagogue to minister to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles is symbolic of the fact that God, in response to Israel's rejection, would temporarily postpone establishing the kingdom on earth while calling out a people made up of Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 16, Jesus will reveal that this new group is the church. Now, there were multitudes, and Jesus healed them all. He healed all who came to him at this time of all manner of disease and demon possession. Do you think of Jesus' healings as effortless because, after all, he was God? Well, they weren't. He seems to have dealt with each person individually. Occasionally, he may have encountered 10 lepers at a time and healed them all at once, but even then, there was always some personal interaction. If you've ever been in need and gone to an agency for help, you probably filled out forms rather than talking to somebody about your unique situation. That's because it takes so much time to really interview someone and it taxes the interviewer's emotions. 
So the organization usually comes up with a way to quickly assess and meet the needs. Otherwise, its workers, quite honestly, get overwhelmed. It's very difficult dealing with people in need. They are stressful. You want to help them, but, you know, are they telling you the truth and how far can you go and how much resource do you have and how much do you really need to know and all that? And so a lot of places just come up with a questionnaire or a form. A lot of times people will come here for help. We'll say, well, have you been here, here, and here? Yes, and this is the program at this particular place. I I can't go back until the 15th over here, and, and everything is very systematic, and I understand that because it's very difficult. And so Jesus' healings, they were not effortless. He didn't just have a huge crowd of people and say, hey, you people, just be healed. Playoffs are on this afternoon. (laughs) Jesus spent time with individuals, and he was healing as a man filled with and led by and baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was exhausting for him. It was definitely uh, the mode of being a servant. Jesus embodied what F.B. Meyer said. His life was ever one of service. Whether it was serving his father in the relative obscurity of growing up and learning obedience in Nazareth or going about preaching and healing for three and a half years or dying on the cross, Jesus was servant. Now I'm gonna quote Meyer again. He says, oh, that he would so incarnate himself in us that we, in our own measure, may repeat those features of his earthly ministry. It should cause us to pause for a moment and in our hearts sing, make me a servant, make me a servant, make me a servant today. When we serve in humility, people see Jesus. They see the God of heaven and earth stooping to save them, our servant God. Now in verses 16 through 21, the God you serve uh, continues to serve. Matthew next does something that would be quite unmistakable to the Jews. He Uh, says that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 42, and the Jews would recognize this as the first of a series of passages in Isaiah that are sometimes called the servant songs. The other passages are in chapters 49 and 50, and the one we're most familiar with, chapter 52 and 53. Matthew applies those Verses those songs to Jesus. Jesus was and is that servant being described by Isaiah. He was and is God's savior to Israel and to the whole world. And so I want to read verses 16 through 21 as a unit, and then we'll come back and talk about them. It says, yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust." point I want to make is that what we read here is still ongoing. This is what Jesus is about till he sends forth justice to victory. When is that? Well, another translation says, until he has made righteousness overcome all. 
Whether that refers to his second coming when he establishes the delayed kingdom on earth or to his final judgment and the creation of new heavens and a new earth, it's clearly still in the future. So what is being described about Jesus in these verses and about us as his followers is current. It's contemporary. This is how we serve right now. And that's why we can say that Jesus continues to serve in the ways these verses reveal and that he does it through you and I. He does it incarnate, as it were, in you and I by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. It's funny, they always did, didn't they, despite his warning. So I think the text is telling us something more than Jesus was trying to avoid confrontation with the religious leaders before it was time for his crucifixion. Certainly that's part of it. The Lord uh, knew that he was on a timetable. He knew he was headed to his crucifixion. He didn't want to uh, you know, get ahead of schedule by antagonizing the religious leaders. And so he says, hey, don't tell them. Of course, everybody disobeyed that. They'd just been healed of blindness or withered hands or raised from the dead. It's kind of hard to keep that to yourself. Hey, weren't you dead a few minutes ago? No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you're the guy that was dead a few minutes ago and now you're alive. Ah, uh, maybe. Uh, no, I mean, it's just something. So they published it. But I believe, too, his admonition to not tell is typical of a servant who is not looking for any glory, but only for God to receive praise. And so it's an example of how to serve. Jesus said, hey, don't tell anybody. Nobody really needs to know. It's between you and I. Keep it quiet. And it's because you don't need to really publish his name. He wasn't advertising for himself. It's hard for us to remain anonymous, isn't it? As much as we know we should remain anonymous serving the Lord, remain unknown behind the scenes, we become offended when our name isn't listed or read or when no one encourages us. It's just a human thing. Suppose you and five other people are responsible for some ministry and then at, uh, you know, pastor gets up and he says, I want to commend five people for you know, their, their solid servant's heart, you know, and, and you get left out. Your reaction should be praise the Lord. But it's typically what just happened. In fact, I worked harder than all of them. The pastor doesn't love me. That's it, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go where they recognize me. I'm gonna grab one of those leftover bricks and put my name on it or something like that. You know, it's crazy. So we wanna be known. But that's all coming at the end, and it's going to come from Jesus at his judgment seat, and so wait for it. Best thing in the world that could happen to you is that you would be overlooked, and that nobody would mention you. Another insight we might do well to glean from this idea of being chosen is that we ought not to appoint ourselves to any position, but rather let the Lord place us as he sees fit. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. It's possible to spend your entire Christian life trying to do something that you haven't really been chosen to do, that you haven't been gifted to do. Uh, sadly, I know a lot of people like this, not just a few. And I think they're still my friends, but I, I've told them, I said, hey, you are not gifted to do that. Yes, I am. What do you know? And, and sadly, a lot of other people feel that way, but they won't tell them the truth. 
The worst thing you could do is encourage somebody who isn't gifted in some way because you don't want to hurt their feelings. If, if they don't have any talent in an area, if they don't have any gifting in an area, then they have it in another area where they will be fulfilled. But we have our society elevates certain people and certain positions and people aspire to those and, and sometimes you're just not chosen for that. I'm sorry. And you need to find out what God does want you to do. And so verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Behold, direct your attention where it should be on Jesus. This is a servant song from Isaiah. If you ask a Jew, they'll say it's about Israel. Israel is God's servant. But it's clear that Matthew is talking about Jesus. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is letting us know that when Isaiah wrote those songs, he was writing them about Jesus. Behold, look at Jesus. Whatever I learn from God's word should enhance my understanding of the Lord, who he is and what he did, what he is doing and what he will do. You know, you can get through a whole teaching and not even mention the name of Jesus Christ if you're not thinking about it. Because there's just so much in the word of God. There's, there's history and doctrine and geography and politics and military strategy. There's all kinds of things that we could talk about from any passage of scripture, but we have to eventually relate it to Jesus Christ. Because God said in Hebrews, hey, I've been trying to communicate you in lots of different ways through prophets and visions and dreams and similes and metaphors, but in these last days, I've given you my son. He is the fullest expression of everything I want to say to you. Look to him. Look to him. And so we want to be talking about Jesus all the time and looking for him. In your reading this year, in your devotional reading, whatever it is, Try and relate the passage to Jesus Christ. What does this tell me about the Lord and his coming and his love for me? Mankind's greatest need was for a servant, someone who would take your place in death, paying the penalty for your sins so that God could declare you righteous. But to be that servant, you'd have to be a man to identify with mankind, and you'd have to be God in order for your substitutionary sacrifice to be effective. Jesus took the form of that servant, the God-man, leaving heaven and humbling himself by dying on the cross. Chosen by God, lots of doctrine packed into that idea of being chosen. But the thing I get in this context is that God chose to do something in response to mankind's rebellion against him, something wonderful, sending his only begotten son into our story as a man to serve us on the cross and thereby save us. Jesus was always God's beloved, in that he was one with God and God himself. In the incarnation, as Jesus grew and lived upon the earth as a man, God was well pleased. That means, among other things, that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, only always doing his Father's will and work. The Father put his spirit upon Jesus. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon the Lord to empower him in his serving. And it becomes an example to us of how to be baptized by, filled with, and led by the Holy Spirit because he is just as available to us as he was to Jesus Christ. His declaring justice to the Gentiles is ongoing, is it not? 
It's a phrase that describes the entire time between the Lord's ascension into heaven and the resurrection and rapture of the church, a time in which the gospel is going out beyond just an offer of the kingdom to Israel. God gave Jesus the spirit for his mission and ministry, and after he ascended, God gave his church, he gave us the spirit to continue that mission and ministry until he returns. Verse 19, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's often said that the Jews expected and were looking for a powerful political and military leader as their Messiah, and that made sense on one level because they were a subjugated people. They were subject to the Roman government. They were occupied by Rome, and they wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome and be a sovereign nation again. And so it was easy to think of their Messiah, their savior, who was going to establish a kingdom as a political and military leader. The servant songs of Isaiah make it clear that the Messiah would not be a political or military man. Verse 19 sort of sums that up nicely. He would lead no public revolution but instead offer personal transformation. It says there, he's not gonna quarrel or cry out. No one's gonna hear his voice in the streets. There's no political revolution. There's no military overthrow. It's gonna be a very different kind of salvation that he offers the first time. He would not shed Roman blood. He would shed his own blood to save us from sin. Now, in passing, we might note that one day the Jews will think they have their political and military Messiah, but we know who that is. It's the man the Bible calls the Antichrist among maybe 20 or 30 other names for him who will bring peace, a strong political military peace to the Middle East, and he will hang on to it for about three and a half years defending it, uh, but in the middle of that period of time, as you know, he'll declare himself as God, demand worship, and he will be revealed as the Antichrist instead of Christ against Christ, certainly not the Messiah. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust." Jesus had been followed by multitudes, including Gentiles. Twice now in the Isaiah passage from the Old Testament, Gentiles are named. It's signaling a change in God's prophetic program. We'll see it more clearly in chapter 13, where in a series of about seven parables, the Lord outlines how the gospel will spread to the whole world during the time between his ascension and the second coming. So Jesus, he's gonna be, the, as I said, kingdom and king are being rejected. And so God's gonna put his program for Israel on hold. There's gonna be a pause or a parenthesis while the gospel goes out to the whole world, to Jew and Gentile alike. It's a time called in other places the fullness of the Gentiles. And then the church is going to be gathered up to heaven, resurrected and raptured. And then the Lord will re-engage with Israel and finish his promises to them, and he will return 
to establish the kingdom. Eventually, in chapter 16, Jesus is going to reveal that he's going to begin building his church in this parentheses, something that is brand new, not revealed in the Old Testament. It's interesting, a lot of times, I, I, I mention this because it's important all the time. Hopefully, you're getting tired of hearing it. That means you understand it. Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. And this is where people go wrong on a doctrinal level in many areas, but especially in terms of the end times. Uh, God has a distinction between Israel and his plan for them and the church and his plan for it. And one way I know, there are many ways I know that, but one way is that when Jesus first talks about the church, he says, I will build my church. It's something brand new that no one's ever talked about before. And he says, I'm going to build it. He, I'm going to start building it from now forward. He doesn't say, I'm going to forget Israel and make the church take their place, or I'm going to continue to build only with Gentiles. He says, no, I'm going to start something brand new. I am going to build my church upon the rock of Peter's confession of who Jesus Christ is. We'll get to that in chapter 16, but I wanted to throw that in. In the meantime, during this church age in which we are empowered by God's indwelling Holy Spirit to be servants, it would do well for us to see and to serve people the way Jesus did. You see, we've established that, that this is how Jesus served and that this is how he's serving still because we're still in that time when he's declaring justice to the Gentiles. And so this is how to serve. Although not a complete description of him as God's servant, two things are mentioned a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. For lack of a better word, this captures the attitude we ought to have as servants of the Lord. Now, obviously, reeds and flax are meant to represent people, both ourselves and those we are sent by Jesus to serve. The Holy Spirit is here describing people whose grace is at present weak, whose repentance is feeble, and whose faith is very small. Towards such persons, the Lord Jesus Christ is very tender and compassionate. Reeds were stems of a variety of species of plants. They were carved into ink pens or walking sticks, or their fibers were used for weaving or making into parchment for writing on. Because of their abundance, reeds were not very valuable. Bruised reeds, ones that were bent over and damaged in any way, were useless and worthless and wouldn't be given a second look. No one looking for reeds to bind together to make some kind of a, a pointer or walking stick would say, oh my, look at that poor bruised reed. Let's have a memorial for this bruised reed. Now they just pull it up out of the ground and get rid of it and they'd find other reeds that were suitable because they were so common. Have you ever felt bruised emotionally or spiritually? Another way of asking it is, have you ever been hurt? I'm happy for you if you can honestly answer no. I'd be surprised if you could honestly answer no and accuse you of being a liar, but I would be happy for you. Most of us go through life bruised and hurting on many levels. Not a matter of have we ever been is how badly are we now? God looks upon us as bruised reeds that are valuable and that can be made useful. 
Our bruising isn't allowed by him to break us, but to make us a people of compassion who have passion to minister to others the same grace of God that is sufficient in every one of our circumstances. Flax is what was used as the wick in an oil lamp. A wick on an oil lamp might smolder because it was low on oil or trimmed improperly. Usually a smoldering wick would be put out because it would produce too much smoke and no light. Nobody wants a smoldering candle. You put a candle on so that you can enjoy the flicker of the light, not so that you can fill the room with a gaseous odor. Have you ever felt that you were in a place that you could not see your way out of, as if you were in the dark, groping? And then just when you thought it couldn't possibly get any worse, you felt as if you were choking on smoke, suffocating emotionally and spiritually. Again, if you've never been in a place like that, I'm thrilled for you, but you're an even bigger liar because most of us have found ourselves groping in the dark, gasping for breath, and some of us are in a place like that right now. The psalmist referred to this as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You recognize that, obviously, from Psalm 23. That's a favorite at funerals, is it not? I don't know if I've ever been to a funeral where Psalm 23 wasn't read. And that's okay, that's appropriate. But the valley of the shadow of death isn't describing you after you die. It's describing how life feels, not death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. If you think that when you die, it's going to be like the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, man, get me. I can't see heaven. Where is it? No, it's not like that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Angels come and they carry you to heaven. It's not, you know, it's not going to be a, a terrifying darkness. Psalm 23 is talking about your life right now. Right now, I feel like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. That's worse than Death Valley. I mean, we talk about Death Valley. A lot of places, there's Diablo Canyon. Why do they use these names? I d don't go to places like that. Bad things must happen there, right? <laughs> the Devil's Ridge and all that. But uh, this is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. I mean, that's, that's a dark place where you feel like you're enclosed and, and ambushed and going to die. It, but that's now. That's why you're alive, not after you die. The Lord isn't allowing it to quench us, but rather that we would yield to his spirit to rekindle our flame, that we might realize he alone lights our path and is the lamp to our feet. Do you remember that in the new heavens and in the new earth, all the light comes from God himself? Verse 5 of Revelation 22 says, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. So there's no darkness, and there's no sun, and there's no moon. The only light in eternity is the light of God, the light that comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that's the same light that we have available to us now spiritually speaking, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we find ourselves smoldering wicks. 
God is just as much our light now as he will be then. It's not him who leads us into the dark, but he can and will lead us through it and out of it. And it says he does this till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. Till the Lord comes to claim his victory and establishes righteousness, the gospel's being sent out. It's being sent out by us, being sent out with it. Wherever we are, wherever we go, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. At times, we're gonna be like bruised reeds and smoking flax, and in those times, God is sufficient for us. Other times, the folks we encounter will be like bruised reeds and smoking flax. We are to serve them as the Lord serves us. One commentary put it like this. It's better than I could say it, so let me quote. There are some in every congregation hearing the gospel who are ready to despair of their own salvation because their strength seems so small. They're full of fears and despondency because their knowledge and faith and hope and love appear so dwarfish and diminutive. Let them drink comfort out of this text. Let them know that weak faith gives a man as real and true an interest in Christ as strong faith, though it may not give him the same joy. There is life in an infant as truly as in an adult. There is fire in a spark as truly as in a burning flame. The least degree of grace is an everlasting possession. It comes down from heaven. It is precious in our Lord's eyes. It will never be overthrown. I love that. Maybe you're bruised and smoldering today. The Lord wants to bind you up and fan you into flame. Even while you are waiting for him to serve you in those ways, you can serve others by coming alongside and binding them up and fanning their smoldering wick into flame. Jesus was God's suffering servant. So are you after him until the end of the age when he will serve us again at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together.